Well, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me to Ruth chapter 2. We're going to be, we're continuing our study of Ruth today. There's four chapters in Ruth, and we're studying Ruth over four weeks, but today we'll be in Ruth chapter 2. Let me pray for us, and then we'll look at our text. Father God, we are here to remember again that we're a child of God. We're in your family. You've brought us into your house. Similar to to Ruth in that field so many centuries ago who is favored. She caught the eye of Boaz and he favored her. We're favored. We, we, We don't deserve to be here. We didn't earn this. We're favored. We're we're products of grace. We're your children because you've made us your children. We're in your house because you've brought us in. Lord, we just praise you and thank you for your grace this morning. Lord, may you draw our minds and our hearts up to who you are and all your glories, as well as help us see the, the gospel as what it is, as truly good, even great news, No greater news have we ever heard. So Lord, do a work today in our minds and our hearts. To that end, Father, I ask that You would send Your Spirit, that He would work alongside Your Word today to help us to see the the truth of the Gospel in Ruth chapter 2. To help us to really believe and trust You in more profound ways. Convict us where we need conviction. Encourage us where we need encouragement. But Spirit, do Your work today. To that end, I pray that I would hide behind the cross, and faithfully proclaim your word. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen. Well, I want to start with a confession this morning. This is Confession Sunday. Um, I've been influenced. I've been influenced by my teenage daughter and her friends. I've been influenced by the seniors that, that I teach, the biblical worldview class. I've been influenced by some of the young ladies in RSM. I want to publicly announce that I'm a Swifty. If you don't know what that is, that's okay. All right? If you don't know what that is, that probably says something good for you. I know I don't look like an average Taylor Swift fan, okay? The average Taylor Swift fan is not a frumpy middle-aged dad. But I do like Taylor Swift, and I've, for the last couple of years, I've really been into Taylor Swift, listening to Taylor Swift with my daughter and her friends. And before you walk out on me on this illustration, just hang, just hang a second with me, okay? She's not a Christian. She doesn't sing Christian music. I'm not claiming any of that. I'm not endorsing everything that she says, okay? She cusses some in there. My daughter and I agree, like, Taylor Swift, you, need to, you don't need to cuss so. She doesn't need to do it, okay? I, I'm not endorsing everything that she says. But for me, it has given me kind of a fascinating window into a young lady's view of the world, at least her. One of her songs that, and I do like this song, it's called The Man. Now, the, the gist of The Man is that Taylor Swift thinks that uh, her life would be different and probably easier if she was a man. So from her perspective, if she was a man, she wouldn't be judged the way that she's judged. She would be able to get away with different things that she's able to get away with. A couple of her lyrics are, is, I'm so sick of running as fast as I can, wondering if I'd get there quicker if I was a man, or man is how it really goes. She says that I'd be a fearless leader, I'd be an alpha type, and this is where she concludes, and I think this is pretty good. She says, because if I was a man, 
I'd be the man. I like that. Listen, I, I don't agree with all her presuppositions, but, but I think she's got some points in that song. She, I think she, she uh, makes some helpful points. And listen, we're at this moment, right, of evaluating masculinity and femininity in and, and our culture. But in reality, we've probably always been there. I threw out a stat, a, a trivia in the first service, and one guy got it. Does anyone know the state that allowed women to vote first? Anyone know which state that was? Then before you answer, this state had the highest percentage of men in that state than any other state. It had the lowest percentage of women in that state. It was the state of Wyoming. Now, in their, I went through Wyoming, I had to stop at the museum, okay? And one of the things they say, it was probably a ploy to try to get women to move to Wyoming. And maybe that was the case, I don't know. But... There's always been this moment of evaluating how men and women relate to each other. What is distinct about femininity and masculinity? And I think in this moment, I I worry that one of the things that's lost in it is the historic virtues of masculinity. Now, I don't want to run from the vices of masculinity, okay? The vast majority of people in prison for violent crimes are men, okay? Basically, all serial killers are men, okay? So there's vices to masculinity. But there's also real virtues to masculinity, right? Like, we don't win D-Day without a bunch of men, right? Like, listen, the, the energy that is provided in this country is basically from a bunch of dirty, rough-necked men with big old forearms, okay? Like there's virtues to masculinity. And today I want to look at a glorious, godly man, a man who stood unmoved for the right convictions. He handled his business well. He cared for his family. He cared for his community. Men, Boaz should be one of your heroes. And ladies, if you happen to be looking for a husband, look for a man like Boaz. Ruth, too, is important because it it, it teaches us that through a godly man, God demonstrated that he gives to, he guards, is generous to, and he gratifies the hearts of his families. I know there's a lot of G's there, but I'm just trying to help you remember the movements here. But, But Boaz teaches us all of that. And today, as we continue our study of Ruth, I just want to remind you what this book is. This is one of the great literary achievements, as some people have described it, in the Old Testament. It's a short story. It's short. It's only four chapters. But like all great short stories, there's layers to this thing. It's profound on a lot of different levels. There's these little nuggets that are thrown out that if you just pause and reflect upon them, they kind of blow your mind. So in reality, what I'm trying to maybe do in this series is maybe introduce you to Ruth, because I think the more you circle Ruth, the more you ponder it, the more profound it becomes. The main message, I believe, from the book of Ruth is that God promises to love his family. You see, the book of Ruth is a family story. Really, it's this kind of look at a, at a really an ordinary family. There's nothing really that spectacular about them, right? There, there's, there's not kings and queens and mighty warriors. This is an ordinary family, and they're dealing with many ordinary issues. However, there's a link from this story to the grand, extraordinary, redemptive story that God is playing out because these folks are connected to the lineage of Christ, as we're going to see in chapter 4. So there's a, there's a link from the ordinary to the extraordinary. So God is working through the ordinary to love His family. Last week we made the comment that, listen, in the ordinary, many times we're playing checkers 
where God is playing three-dimensional chess. God is working through the ordinary. He's doing something glorious at all times. Last week, the focus was on Naomi and Ruth. This week, the shift is to Boaz and Ruth. And, and through how Boaz carries himself, we're going to see that God gives through his kingdom. Number two, that God guards through his people. Number three, that God is generous through his people and that God gratifies the desires of our hearts through his Redeemer. So let's look at these first seven verses and how God gives through his kingdom. Verse one. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech. Of course, Ruth's father-in-law who's passed away, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. First thing I want you to see from this first verse is Boaz is described as a worthy man. Worthy man is is the phrase used in the ESV. It's a great choice of word here because worthy had a connection in this Hebrew term and phrase had a connection to the fact of pointing that his worthiness was played out and that he was a, a wealthy man. But, but it was more than that. Sometimes he, he's just described as a wealthy man. Worthy is probably better than wealthy because there's more to him than just a, a man of material means. There was a spiritual substance about this man. He was a godly man. So he does have physical wealth, but more than that, Boaz is to be understood as a godly man. In fact, Boaz is really, I think, held out as an, as an ordinary uh, godly man. In other words, he's the ideal righteous man. I'll put my cards on the table. Boaz is one of my heroes in the Bible. I, I love Boaz. And, and I love just kind of how he carries himself. There's just a way that this guy treats people, goes through life, to me that is really inspiring upon, uh, about what a godly man should look like. Listen, the, the Bible talks about real people, and in this case, ordinary people, okay? So we see the virtues and the vices of people in the Bible, which is actually a clue to the truthfulness that they were actually real people, okay? Boaz is a real person. However, his virtues actually point us to Christ. In fact, later we're, he's going to be called a redeemer. And so Boaz is set here uh, as a Christ-like figure. So we're like a great short story. We're supposed to kind of maybe see him on two levels. At one level, he kind of points us to Christ. And we're going to see a lot of Jesus in his life. But at another level, he's this ordinary, righteous, godly man that we should model our lives after. He's a worthy man in numerous ways. As you look over these first verses, again, I just love how he carries himself because he's someone that other people could count on when they were in trouble. You see, he was generous. He cared. But, but he matched that caring heart with real maturity and, and responsibility. He was a responsible man, which means he could match that caring heart 
with real uh, helpful actions that really helped them, okay? Like he wasn't this flighty guy that just, you know, kind of did all this random things that were nice, but maybe doesn't really help somebody. Do you get what I'm saying? Like he's someone that can really be counted on. He's someone that's responsible and mature, but he's not stingy. He, he's really generous. He really cares for the people uh, that, that, uh, that are in his sphere. This is a godly man. But we also see Ruth's character here too, right? Like she's also a worthy woman. Do you notice, look at uh, verse 2. Who in verse 2 comes up with the idea to go glean in the fields? It's not Naomi. It's Ruth. She comes up with the idea. And notice who actually goes to the field. It's Ruth. It's not Naomi. I don't know what was going on with Naomi that day. I would assume that she could have gone out there and helped. But it's, but it's Ruth who goes out there. And all of that points to the character of Ruth. Like she's the one who comes up with the idea. And she's the one who actually goes out and does it. Well, what is gleaning? Listen, we need to understand gleaning is hitting rock bottom. Okay. For someone to go out into a field and do what Ruth was doing on that day, she was hitting rock bottom. This is kind of like Israel's quasi-welfare system. This was set up to really help people who were impoverished, who were maybe going to be starving. They couldn't meet their basic needs. This is a way for them to meet their basic needs. The gist of gleaning is, is you would follow along for those who were, who were reaping the harvest and all the leftovers that they missed the impoverished people could come along and pick that up and then uh, take advantage of that. And typically, what it would help them do is it would help them just have enough to not starve, okay? So this was a way for impoverished people to go out and work and have some means of not starving. So it was, in some ways, kind of like the, the uh, Israel quasi-welfare uh, uh, system. But again, this is hitting rock bottom for her. Like she's having to put aside her pride to go do this. There's something somewhat embarrassing about doing this. Like, and as a result of this, she really demonstrates her faithfulness here. Like she's able to put aside her pride and just do what she's got to do to take care of herself and her mother-in-law. This is a great example of faithfulness. She's caring for her mother-in-law. She had this beautiful speech in chapter 1. Uh, committing to and pledging her loyal love to her mother-in-law, and this is what it looks like. Now, I say that and, and say it that way because this gets to the nature of faithfulness. This is what faithfulness looks like. In other words, faithfulness matches a pledge to actions. Like she doesn't just have this kind of sit back, let go, and let God in the sense of I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to float along doing my thing, and then I'm going to you know, trust God to take care of everything. She, she matches her pledge of loyal love to Naomi with action. That's what faithfulness looks like. Also notice that um, here that about uh, both of their righteousness, both of their worthy character. Further, I want you to see Boaz's greeting there. This is more than a good morning to his workers. When it says in verse 4, when he, when he greets them the way that he does, that's included in the story for us to, to pick up on the fact that this is a pious man. So, so he, he greets them in such a way to where he's trying to, I think the best way to interpret this is that he's trying to create a certain culture amongst his workers, okay? Maybe you have a farm, maybe you don't. You probably don't. But think of this farm as like his little small business, okay? He's the boss over this thing. He can create whatever culture he wants. He can create a culture everybody's scared of everything and they're, you know, 
uh, you know, or there's a cutthroat culture or a gossipy culture. You know, he, he has a real role to play in the culture that he's creating, and he's creating this culture that is sacred, that is God-glorifying. Like, like he's embedded this even in how he greets people, and it's not just talk with him. He's created this loving environment within his small business. He's got this little area of his control and care, and, and he does it in a, in a way that is sensitive to his workers' needs, and he's sensitive to the impoverished gleaners. Ruth and Naomi, if you remember have come to Israel empty. You remember there's this filling theme throughout the book of Ruth. If you remember from chapter 1, Naomi says, you know, we went away full, which really isn't true, and they've come back empty, which is certainly true, but she forgets that God is actually orchestrating all of that, and He he brings them back right at the moment of the barley harvest. So what God is doing here is He's filling, okay? But notice how He is filling, He's filling through a godly man. Now, in Deuteronomy 15, it lays out uh, some, some different laws in, of how people are supposed to function in the nation of Israel. Specifically in Deuteronomy 15, it talks about how uh, the poor were to be treated. Now, there's a couple of interesting things that maybe seem like they're in, in contradiction to each other. In Deuteronomy 15:11, it acknowledges that the, the reality that the poor will always be with us. But then it also says in Deuteronomy 15.4 that the ideal is not to have any poor in Israel. That's not a contradiction. That's a tension of saying the poor will always be here, but we should work towards eliminating poverty. And so in Deuteronomy 15, it sets up rules like forgiving debts at a certain time, uh, freeing slaves, being generous. And, And so what's happening in that field that day is kind of in line with this Deuteronomy 15 understanding of how the poor are to be treated. They're to be cared for. They're, they're to be uh, an, an avenue for them uh, to, to live and climb up out of their poverty. Deuteronomy 15 and Ruth 2, they're important because they link the heart of God to, this, to, to tangible ways that the poor were cared for in Israel. However, we're not Israel, okay? Let's be clear on that. We're not living in Old Testament Israel. We're living in America, okay? Even better, we're living in Texas. Amen? Just kidding. That's a joke. It's not in my notes. We're not living in a theocracy. And I'll put my cards on the table. Unless King Jesus is over that theocracy, I don't really want to live in a theocracy. We're living in in something different, okay? And we all know the story of America, and there's uh, Christians who were uh, founders of our country. Some of them were not. There's some Christian ideals embedded in our doctrine. But we know our moment, too. Like, we're in a moment where the culture is increasingly hostile to Christianity, right? Maybe we have this past history, but that's not what it is today. But none of that diminishes the reality that as Christian people, we should care for those in need. When we see problems in our culture, we should try to fix it. When we see problems of of poverty, we should advocate for ways to help. Deuteronomy 15 and, and Ruth 2 they're really about something more fundamental than tax codes and nonprofits. It explains that God gives through His kingdom. You see, Ruth 2, consistent with Deuteronomy 15, it's this call for God's people to be a giving people. So God's approach is for godly people like Boaz to give generously. Again, Boaz is a godly man, and thus what we see him doing is godliness. He's giving which is godly. Let's keep reading in verse 8. We want to see how God guards His people. 
Verses 8 verses eight to 13 say, Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go uh, to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young, one, to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? Verse 11. But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and come to a people that you, that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have chosen to take refuge. Then verse 13, Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. There's a lot there, but let's begin with the, the, the two commands that Boaz gives to Ruth. Number one, he tells her to keep gleaning in his field. He tells her, don't go to another field. And the reason why he does that is not for her benefit, but not for his benefit, but for her to benefit, to guard and protect her. He doesn't want her to be assaulted or, or abused in any, any way. And he's told his workers, he's commanded his men to take care of her. Second, he offers her drinks whenever she has a need. Now, both of those commands are about protecting and guarding her. Boaz, in a sense, is taking her under his wing. Do you see that? Now, now notice the imagery there. He's saying, you have chosen to put yourself under God's wing. But the way that it's played out is he's guarding her. He's protecting her. So Ruth is grateful for his care. And she very dramatically and humbly bows before him. And this reminds us to, to images in Revelation and other places. When people see the Lord, they, they bow before Him. This is a, a, a dramatic but a humble response to His protection and His provision. She's grateful in a very humble way. Once again, we see both Boaz's virtue as well as Ruth's virtue in here. But this bleeds into his explanation for why. Why is he doing this? Now, now she says that he has caught her his eye. But, but that really has, there's no indication that has, that has anything to do with her physical beauty. Now, when we say something like that, we assume that, but that's not what's qualified here. Really, what has caught his eye is her spiritual beauty, if you will. He doesn't talk about anything physical about her. He talks about th this loyal love that's been demonstrated. He talks about all these things that he has heard about how she left Moab, how she's caring for Naomi, all the things that have happened to her. So Boaz saw his provision and, and protection as God's will. He heard about all that she had done, and the reason why he's doing this is because this is God's will. Now, he's the one giving up drink and, and bread and barley. It's, it's operating through him, but he understands that this is God's will. Boaz desired to be the hand of God and show her care. Do you see that connection? Do you see in both these verses, he's talking about God, and she's talking about Boaz. You see, Boaz understands that what he's doing is God's will. She's giving him credit. And he's saying, no, no, no. This is the Lord. I'm, I'm caring for you. I'm protecting you. I'm guarding you. 
but it's not really me doing it. It's God doing it. He's doing it through me. You see, there's, there's this intertwining of God's will and a godly man's hands. Do you see that? That's how God is operating here. Boaz demonstrates that he's a godly man and thus he desires to do the will of God. He cares for his people. He creates this God-glorifying work environment. He protects. He provides for those in needs. He doesn't hoard his wealth, but he gives it away. His wealth is a tool to do the Lord's will. Do you see that? All this is intertwined. The Lord's will and Boaz's will. How does God guard his people today? How can you be used by God to guard the vulnerable in your life, the Ruths in your life? How can you protect and provide? Who and what do you need to give to? Why do you think He's given you the wealth that He's given you? Friend, God guards through the hands of His people. Well, number three, God is generous through His people. Look at 14 to 16. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over when she rose to glean Boaz instructed his young men saying let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her and also pulled and also pulled out some of the some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her what a beautiful scene You see, verses 14 to 16, they highlight the generous nature of Boaz's giving. You see, in the previous section, he gave to Ruth. He provided for her to make it through the day, to to not starve. God, that's God's will, that's God's heart. He does it through the hands of a godly man. However, Boaz did more than just meet her basic need of not starving. Boaz is generous in how he gave to her. Notice this scene. Come and dip the bread into the wine. He offers her roasted grain. You see, eating, uh, eating the bread, that, that kept her from starving. But dipping it into the wine, the roasted grain, what was that about? That, that was about flavor, okay? Like, like he's not just giving to her. He's giving generously to her. He's not just giving her something to eat. He's giving her something good to eat. Maybe this image breaks down. But, but it's like, it's the difference between a fast food joint and a nice Italian restaurant, right? Like, yes, you can offer someone a small fry. That would be giving to someone they're not going to starve today. But something different is, is inviting them to the nice Italian restaurant. You sit down and enjoy the bruschetta bread. It's got the goat cheese on top. It's, it's drizzled with the olive oil, balsamic mix, okay? Maybe this breaks down. But, but you see the point, right? It's different between the small fry and the bruschetta bread. He's not just giving to her, he's giving generously to her. This is how he's a Christ-like figure, right? But God hasn't just given to you, he's given generously to you, right? He's given you more than what you deserve, what you could never earn. He's given generously. Further, Boaz gave generously to the degree that she was full and had leftovers. Do you see that? She had leftover roasted grain and bread dipped in wine. And we're going to see in the final section, she brings leftovers home to Naomi. She has leftovers because uh, this godly man was generous to her. Also notice that he says, pull out these extra bundles of grain. 
Guys, let me say it this way. Boaz is not a tipper, he's a tither. Are you with me? This is a generous man. He's not checking boxes. He's caring for needs. Ruth is not a distraction for him. She's ministry for him. This guy's busy, yet he gives real energy and thought to how he can best minister to him. He's not doing the bare minimum for her. He's going the extra mile to be, uh, to be faithful and kind to her. Listen, righteousness is not just do the bare minimum. Okay, what's the lowest bar and I can slip underneath it? That's not what Boaz does here. He gives from a pure and a glad heart. He is giving generously. And, and let's be clear about the, the link we're meant to see. Boaz is a Christ-like figure. He's a pious man seeking to do the will of God, and, and, and he should be praised for it. But, but God's will and Boaz's will, they're all intertwined here to, to where ultimately Boaz understands that everything that he's doing, God actually should be praised for. You see, this was God's idea, and God is ultimately the one working through Boaz. Therefore, God was being generous to Ruth through Boaz. And as a result, the principle is that God is generous through His people. Do you see that? God is a generous God. He's been generous to you. And the way He does it primarily is through the generosity of His people. Like the previous section, this section forces us to ask some questions. How is God using you to give generously to others? Maybe another question is, is are you faithfully allowing God to use you to give generously to others? And listen, you might need to, to go back a bit. Like, how has God been generous to you? Broken people loving broken people. Listen, that phrase is about you, you can't love broken people unless you understand you're broken, which means you understand that God has graciously been generous to you. And out of that beating heart flows everything else. Going back to how God has been generous to you then drives how we can be generous to other people. This is tacky and cynical, but let me say it this way. God doesn't give generously through Tinkerbell fairies or money trees. He does it through us. Do you see that? He doesn't just rain it out there. God is generous to people in need through God's people. Section 4. God gratifies hearts through His Redeemer. Look at verses 17 to 23. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned. Then it was about an epoch of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close to my young men until they have finished all, all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out uh, with his women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the, young, to the young women of Boaz, 
gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Boaz's generosity led to Ruth's satisfaction. After she was done with her work, she took home likely what was a 30-pound bag of barley. This is the equivalent of one of those like big dog food bags that you come home with, right? She comes home with a lot. And that's all the equivalent of about a year's worth of bread. This is generous giving. Generous to the degree that she is satisfied. And again, notice she comes home with leftovers, right? Leftovers are wrapped up for Naomi. So not only is Ruth satisfied, Naomi is satisfied. That they're taken care of. And again, we see this theme of filling. They're filled as a result of Boaz's generosity. Listen, she has lost a lot. Both of them have lost a lot. However, God has graciously brought them home and has filled them up. God is filling them. Now, what is happening physically is linked to what is happening spiritually. Okay? Do you see that? Like, like again, Naomi's praising God for this. Like, this is doing something to her soul. God is satisfying her soul. He's gratifying their hearts here. So when Ruth walks in with this 30-pound bag of a year's worth of food, they praise God for it. They recognize that Boaz is a godly man. Keep gleaning there. But ultimately, praise God. God has worked through this man. He's filling their hearts. God gratifies hearts. But notice again how he does it. This is where the, I think the theme of, of uh, the book of Ruth pops up. is this phrase, gall. In, in the Hebrew, this phrase is translated either redeemer or kinsman redeemer. I think kinsman redeemer is a better translation. And the ESV uses redeemer. But, but there's a, a family aspect to this name. This is someone who's in their family. So he is a redeemer. He's supposed to help them. He's supposed to help them in their need. But he's part of their family here, okay? Now, as this uh, story progresses, we're going to see how he's part of their family. But all of this points to the fact that Boaz is a Christ-like figure. He's a redeemer in the same way that Christ is a redeemer for us. They're, they're, They're similar figures here, and we're supposed to see it in that name. So, like how Boaz satisfies the physical needs of Ruth and Naomi, God satisfies the hearts of His people. God gratifies hearts through His Redeemer. This is the great takeaway from Ruth 2. That as God provided Boaz as a kinsman Redeemer for Ruth and Naomi, so God has provided Jesus as our Redeemer. Friends, there's much to be admired by Boaz. There's even more to be worshipped about Jesus, right? Like he's pointing to something more glorious. Listen, I admire him. Boaz is a godly man. He was godly for Ruth and Naomi. However, for us, Jesus is the godly man. He's the godly man who has provided for our salvation, and he's the godly man who has provided for our sanctification. Uh, Jesus gives generously to the point of soul satisfaction. It's a 30-pound bag of a year's worth of food. He's our Redeemer. He's our godly man that saves. Do you remember Romans 3.26? Jesus shed His blood on the cross, quote, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. See, Jesus is our godly man. He's our Redeemer. He's the one who has saved. He's the one who has gotten him on that cross. He's the just and the justifier. 
He's the one who gives generously. He has saved. Boaz generously giving to Ruth. It just gives us one more little gospel perspective of the glories of Jesus and the glories of the gospel because it highlights the generosity of Jesus. Believe that Jesus is your Redeemer and He gives generously. But, but further, again, Jesus gives generously to the point of soul satisfaction. He's our Redeemer, but He's our godly man who sanctifies he doesn't just save, but He sanctifies. His generosity didn't stop at the cross. It actually started at the cross. Like there's this glorious, generous moment where He pays for your sins. He gives you way more than what you have ever deserved or could, could ever deserve. But it doesn't stop there. He continues to give generously to us. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is John 10.10. 10. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus is our godly man. He's our redeemer. And he gives generously to us. He gives abundant life to us. So he keeps growing us. He keeps blessing us. We keep finding life-giving water in him. It's a well that never runs dry. The cross is the beginning he saves, but He also sanctifies. He satisfied our souls that moment we were converted, but He continues to satisfy our souls. Therefore, faithfulness, it's communion and it's worship. It's walking with Him. It's worshiping Him for all of His glory. But, but Ruth 2 is more than that. Ruth 2 is a link to our lives, right? It's not just a link to Christ and worshiping Him. It's a link to our lives. God has given generously to us so that we can give generously to others. Broken people loving broken people. Again, His will is to be generous, and He does it through His people. He's given us a Redeemer, as well as other godly men, so that we can in turn become the godly man for others. You see that here? God is working through Boaz. That's the same way He works today. He generously loves through the generosity of His people. How do you need to become the godly man that God can use? How can you be the one others can turn to? Who is in need that you need to minister to right now? Who's your Ruth? How can you give generously? Taylor Swift makes some fair points in her song. I'm not one to ignore the problems of masculinity from the past. However, I have known a lot of men like Boaz. This church is filled with a lot of Boaz-like men. I love Boaz. I love the way he carried himself. And as I've thought about Boaz this week, I'm just thinking about different examples of Boaz-like men in my life. And, and I've just thought a lot about my father. I just appreciated, uh, he passed away in 2020, and I just appreciated how he carried himself. He was a worthy and respectable man. Let me just give you three attributes that I, that I think are like Boaz. And I saw this in another ordinary man of my father. He was, he was the spiritual leader of our home. Like, he ensured that we got to church. We were there every Sunday. We went to Sunday school. We went to big church. Had to go to choir. It was a beat down. Dad made me go, okay? We were there on Wednesday night when they had Sunday night church. We were there when they canceled Sunday night church. He was mad about it. He was a godly man. He got us there. He was, more, he was more than just being there. He served. He served his church. He served his community. He was a deacon for years there. 
He oversaw all the small groups uh, in our church at one point. He, did, he uh, saw needs in our community. He started a nonprofit at one point. My, <laughs> my first job was a paper route. The Denton Record Chronicle, they would throw the paper in the afternoon. I'd get home from school with the papers, I'd roll them, I'd throw them. I got the first, uh, my first paycheck. Dad sits me down. He says, you give 10% to the Lord through our church. You save 10%, and you can do whatever you want with the 80%. Th- that was his spiritual leadership in my life from a very young age. Number two, he provided for our family. Listen, there were lean years, okay? He had ups and downs in his businesses. I, I learned so much from, that being, from him that being a man is just taking care of a family. Like, like he changed careers a couple of times, but he was able to do it because he had a good reputation. He was in a business that was built upon his reputation. And, he, and people trusted him. People respected his opinion. He was a good husband. He was a good father. He provided for his family. Number three, he was generous to God's people. His church had multiple building campaigns. He always gave generously to them. If we're counting, this is actually the fourth church that my wife and I have planted. And he, he supported all of them very generously. I'll put my cards on the table. I'm a terrible fundraiser, okay? Uh, and I, and I'm just, I hate asking people for money. And I, in our first building campaign to get in here, uh, to be honest, I was very overwhelmed about it. I didn't know how to do it well. Um, and so I called my dad for advice. And, and I had heard this idea uh, from another pastor about creating like a, a matching fund that would kind of spur the giving in our church. And so I'd, I'd never done that before. I wanted him to shoot holes in it. Again, I'm not a very good fundraiser. So I called him, and here's, here's how I led. Okay, Dad, I'm going to ask you for money, and I want you to feel free to say no. Okay, this, I'd be terrible at selling cars, okay? That's how I led with. And I said, but I have this idea, and I would like to present this idea. I would, I just, more than anything, I just want your advice here. So he patiently listened, and then he quickly said, listen, I love it, and I'll commit this certain amount. He gave a dollar amount just right out the gate. I said, whoa, okay. And I got excited. I was very discouraged that raising money, it felt like a mountain that I couldn't climb. And all of a sudden, okay, I got our first win. Okay. And he said, okay, well, now, now tell me about the project a little bit. And I said, well, it's gotten, that's part of the issue. It's gotten more expensive. He said, well, duh, it's a building project. Of course it got more. That's okay, okay. That's helpful to know. And so I told him, okay, this is what we're trying to raise. And he goes, okay. And he listened patiently. And then I remember he goes, you know, studies show that if you had a lead gift of this percentage, then that will help all the giving for everything else. <laughs> that moment, he, he more than doubled, just like that. Now, I want to get this now to it. He was right. We got our number. We built this place debt-free. We ended the year in the black. That kept me up at night. We're going to lose money on that. We ended the year in the black. When other churches struggled in, the, in COVID, we doubled. He was dying over here and was so excited. He, he kept saying, get a big sign. No, that, you need to get a bigger sign. <laughs> he, he's over here to, and he, he never got to see this. So I ran over here with my phone on video. Just got to sh- just show him this room. <laughs> Taking this to the ceiling cost a lot of money. And his gift helped us to have a where you could actually see it. It was like nine feet tall. Like I'd be bumping the ceiling if he hadn't given anything. And listen, 
He had a vision for that and he understood all of that. Listen, if you've come here since COVID, there's a guy who's already passed away that you'll never get to meet that helped make all this happen. He's not the only one. There's a lot of Boazes in this room and in this church. But that's what that looks like. That's what God does through the generosity of his people. Ladies, I know there's a lot of dogs out there. However, I also know that there's a lot of men like Boaz. Men, what kind of man are you going to be? God promises to love his family, and he does it through godly people like you. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for giving us the book of Judges. It shows us all the headlines of this period. But Lord, thank you for giving us the book of Ruth. It gives us a glimpse into ordinary people. Ordinary, glorious faithfulness. May we see the connection between your will and your people. May we see that the way you accomplish your will, your heart to be generous, to give, that you do that through your people. May may broken people loving broken people mean that we understand that you're a gracious, generous God. And may that transform us in a way that we become a gracious and generous people. I thank you for Boaz's example. I I thank you for the Boaz-like people, men and women of this church that are faithful, keep their head down. Maybe nobody knows it, but they're faithful. They give, they care for people, they're generous. They don't get the headlines. But I just thank you for Boaz-like people. May we be like that man. Men who understand your will. And then through us, you carry it out. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen.